Today we're joined by Derek Gaunt, who has written a new book, Ego Authority Failure, Using Emotional Intelligence Like a Hostage Negotiator to Succeed as a Leader. Now, Derek works with Chris Voss, a former guest of the show in episode 131. Highly recommend you check it out. And what's really cool is Derek brings another view towards hostage negotiation coming from metropolitan police side. I believe you work for the in the DC area. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I started my law enforcement career in 1988 with the Alexandria Police Department in Alexandria, Virginia. If you're familiar with it, it's right across the river from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. And uh, uh, I, I got on with them in 88, became a hostage negotiator in 1997, became a uh, team leader in 2001, team commander in 2004. And that's a spot that I held up until I actually walked out of the door after 25 years. Sorry, I always will interrupt and I apologize ahead of time, but um, when you were a hostage negotiator, was that a other duties as assigned? I think Chris Voss had mentioned that for the police that sometimes happens. Yeah, it's an it's an ancillary assignment. Uh, so uh, the bulk of my main police work was uh, in investigations, first in narcotics and then as a um, as a criminal investigator. And then I became a boss of the uh, detectives. Um so the hostage negotiation job was the part-time assignment. Um, so I was on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week, preparing myself and preparing my team to be ready to address individuals who had take, either taken hostage or were threatening to kill themselves. Now, but in fairness, um, I, I've stu- I'm studying all of this through different people, and I feel like there's a lot of overlap and crossover. Mm-hmm. By doing investigations and things like that, you also did interrogation. And I'm guessing that some of the techniques work hand in hand. Would that be fair? Yeah, because you're you're dealing with human nature response and understanding the human nature response. And, you know, the human nature response dictates that everything that you say, one person to another, causes an emotional reaction on the part of the recipient. That reaction can be small or large, it can be positive or negative, but it is, ne- it is, ne- it is there nonetheless. And so there you have the crossover because whether you're talking about interrogation or you're talking about dealing with a hostage taker, you're talking about dealing with a human being under stressful conditions and stressful conditions uh, cause people to respond emotionally, whether you're in the interrogation room or you're on the phone with a bad guy, they're responding from an emotional frame of reference. And the sooner you get your head around that, the sooner uh, you're going to produce valuable information that's going to help you move the needle, whether it's trying to get a confession or trying to get a, a surrender. And so it's no, it's not by accident that some of my best negotiators were also great detectives. Okay. That makes sense. Now, if you were um, to compare though, like you're doing with business now, obviously in a business environment, it can be very emotional. But it's not always emotional because the stakes are a little bit different sometimes. Do you consider it easier or more difficult if it's less emotional? Uh, The fact that it may be less emotional, and it depends on what your definition of less emotional is. Because if you were to do a brain scan on an individual who's negotiating a $10 million contract, 
and a guy who's inside of a 7-Eleven holding people hostage, you're probably going to see the same type of activity. And so just because the stakes are different doesn't mean that they're not operating at the same, uh, under the same emotional stressors that a, a hostage taker would be. We don't make any decisions. We don't make any movement without it going through an emotional filter. And so uh, one, of the, one of the exercises that I like to run with people who say, yeah, I get it, uh, hostage negotiation, that's cool stuff, but it doesn't really apply to my world because I don't get that emotional. I play this game with them called the ultimatum game. And the ultimatum game, it's $10 of my money, found money, and I split the room in half, proposers and acceptors. Propose, <laughs> pro, proposers can propose a split with the acceptors, any amount they want, nine, one, eight, two, seven, three, et cetera. And they can keep the money if the acceptor accepts. The acceptor can kill any deal that they view as unfair. And it's so I asked, trick. yeah. So I asked him, what, what is the, uh, what, what are your splits? And I have them each stand up and tell me what their split is. What do you think the majority of the splits are? Probably 60-40 in the person keeping. Because if you go nine to one, people get pissed and just say, fine, keep it. Right. You can't have it. Because that's the emotional part, even though it's not logical. Because right. you take one dollar. You didn't have a dollar, they give you a dollar. Right. So we we see a lot of six fours. We see a lot of five fives. And you ask them, what were you thinking when you wanted to split five five? And they say, what? It, seem, it seems fair. And fair is an emotional concept because you hit the nail on the head. The only logical response that an acceptor should accept is a 9-1. Right. Because walking away with something is always better than walking away with nothing. But as you said, people will kill a deal that they view as unfair. And a 9-1 split views or seems to the acceptor as being unfair. And instead of making themselves whole, they would rather punish you. And that's an emotional response. That's a point that comes up too with negotiation that you have to deal with as well, right? To make sure that you don't bully somebody so far where they wind up eating the deal, but then you know later on it's it's going to burn all future deals. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because the last impression is the lasting impression. And when you go back and you talk to people who were involved in intense negotiations, they remember the most intense moment, and they remember how they felt at the end. And revenge is a powerful motivator. All of us all over the planet, regardless of our industries, we are in relatively small communities. And if you don't think your reputation is going to precede you as to how you conduct yourself during a negotiation, you're mistaken. And given the opportunity to make you feel the same amount of pain that they felt when they were dealing with you, if they get that opportunity in the future, you better believe they're going to take it. What would you recommend to mitigate this this effect? I mean, they've done like different studies, like if the last five seconds are, are relatively pain-free or comfortable after getting a colonoscopy, people remember the experience better. Not that I'm saying negotiation is a colonoscopy, <laughs> but it could but it, be. It, it could feel like it at times. Do you maybe hold a little something back so then you could just kind of give a just something on the end so it's like a an uptick right when you leave yeah you always close out with an uptick at, at the at the end of the day regardless of the situation regardless of the discussion i want them to want to talk to me again i want them to want to do business with me again and the fastest way to ensure that is to defer throughout the entire conversation 
you're going to defer to the other side. You're going to subordinate yourself to the other side. The first 80% of your conversation is not going to be about you and where you want to end up. It's going to be about where you want to go or where they want to go. I'm sorry. It's not about where you want to end up. As a hostage negotiator, my goal and objective was to do what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interview you now. What do you think my goal and objective was as a hostage negotiator? I would say deep listen. I uh, know. That's, that's, that's fancy flowery. What is my goal? What is my ultimate goal? Why do they call me to the scene? Find out what the hell they want so you can get them to stand, stand down, ultimately. What do you mean by stand down? Have everyone be safe. Exactly. And have a resolution. Exactly. My job is to get them out safely. Get the people that they're holding out safely, get them to put down their weapon and surrender, right? You and know them that. them to be safe too. Say again? And them to be safe too. Exactly. Everybody. Everybody. Everybody goes home, right? That's my goal and, um, and my objective. How many times do you think I led with that? When I pick, how many times do you think I picked up the phone and said, hey, Eric, it's Derek from the police department. Listen, my goal and objective is to make sure everybody goes home safe today. So why don't you let those people go, put your gun down and you come on out. How many times do you think I led with that? I'm saying it's probably not your first choice. Never. <laughs> but that begs the question though, if that's my goal and objective, why don't I lead with that? Because they're not in a point to where they're receptive to hear it. And the same can be said in business negotiations. We hear stories all of the time of people coming into the negotiation room, throwing all their data and information on the table and saying, Eric, this is why it's logical for you to do X. And Eric looks across the table and goes, nope, not going to do it because they're not vested because we haven't taken the time to understand what's Eric going through. What's he looking at internally? What kind of pressures is he under? What does the environment look like to him? What? right now is a threat to Eric. And until you address the emotional aspect as the other side sees it, you're going to be in a less advantageous position. And so we start out deferring and we continue to end in a deferential manner because we want them to do business with us again. Believe it or not, we, we get repeat offenders in the world of hostage negotiations. We get, yeah, I'm not surprised. We get, <laughs> we'll get those guys that, that come back for a second bite at the apple. And in fact, there was a, there was a, a, a hostage taking that's uh, pretty famous in, in the annals of hostage barricade management that occurred back in 2000. And at one point the negotiator was missing the mark with the, the person on the inside of the house and the, and the, the person on the inside of the house said, stop, stop, stop. You're doing it wrong. You're supposed to be trying to establish rapport with me. Oh, my God. And why did he say that? Because he had been in a similar incident in, I believe it was Idaho, several years earlier. There's so much to be said about that. That's almost like it was a psychological need that he wanted a negotiator, and he put himself in a position position just to get that. Well, and 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 there was a lot of things going on with this guy. This guy was was out and out evil personified. He was a, 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 a psychopath that uh, had no use for empathy for anybody. But like many of the psychopaths that are out there, he was smart as a whip. And, and so he wanted to assert his, uh, his dominance over the negotiator by saying, hey, I know your playbook. Well, that's interesting that you bring that up. Do you deal differently with a psychopath or, or even differently from that, like someone who's, let's say, schizophrenic? And is not, you know, 
in the same wavelength. How do you deal with that? All right. So psychopathy and schizophrenia are two different things, obviously. I agree. And the psychopath is basically a narcissistic, assertive personality who wants to be heard. So what am I going to do in order to defer to a psychopath? I'm going to let him talk. I'm, I'm going to ask questions that are that are open-ended. We call them calibrated questions at Black Swan. Uh, I'm going to ask him uh, open-ended questions and 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 get him to expound because that's what he wants to do. That's he wants to show everybody how much smarter he is. So I'm going to I'm going to uh, placate him with that type of technique. The schizophrenic, a little bit different animal, right? Because they're not dealing in reality. And so, what's the biggest? What's the biggest hurdle for schizophrenic to get over what impedes their ability to have rational dialogue forget the the hallucinations aside what they're dealing with is fear mm-hmm. that's you know they they for the longest time were called paranoid schizophrenics paranoia it's all about fear and so my theme with a schizophrenic is to convey to them that I'm there to make sure that they're safe. They're not being threatened by, you know, the voices in the television or the microwave talking to them or whatever the case may be. Do you indulge them at all to get them on your side? You're not going to get a a schizophrenic on your side. The only thing that that you're going to do for schizophrenic is to um, mitigate their thought process as far as you being a threat. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to agree with their hallucinations. I'm not going to say that I'm seeing the same things that they're seeing or hearing the same things that they're hearing. I'm going to let them know that I believe that they believe that they're hearing it, but. Right. But you're not going to say you're a liar. You don't know what you're talking about. You're nuts. No, because again, again, it's, this is with a schizophrenic, it's, it's the, it's, it's deference and subordination on steroids. So you might say something like that has to be frightening for you. Yes, exactly. That's perfect. Okay. That sounds like it's very frightening for you. I, I wonder about the, I feel like there's a lot of nuance in there. Like, you know, there's big tools, but then they don't necessarily always get applied the exact same way. No, it, they're not. But the overall, the overall concept doesn't change. Understanding human nature response. Is the human nature response a little bit different with a schizophrenic? Yeah, but I'm not, that doesn't mean that I'm not going to continue to do what I would do in a, a suicide negotiation or a, a, a convenience store takeover negotiation or the negotiation of a, a $10 million tech contract because it's human nature. And once you get your head around the human nature response, what does that do for you? People become predictable. You can begin to predict how they're going to act and act and what they're going to say because you have a good appreciation of how they view the lay of the land. Well, I'm going to jump to your... Um your namesake to your organization yeah. and finding the black swan. Yeah. How do you cope then? I notice I go to the hard cases, but how do you cope then with the, somebody you feel like, Hey, this is a suicide by cop. Um, suicide by cops are very difficult in that you're dealing with an individual who does not have the courage necessarily to take the act themselves, or they have, uh, for example, a religious belief that says that they can't do the act themselves, but suicide by cop is suicide. So a suicide by cop is the same thing as somebody standing on the edge of a building. The difference between the two is the jumper on the building is probably not going to take me with them. Right. 
or try to take or try to take me with them or initiate an act against me that's going to force me to push him off of that ledge whereas the suicide by cop is going to intentionally engage in an activity that's going to cause a deadly force response from me as a cop but suicide intervention techniques are going to be the same but the heightened What's what's different is there's a heightened threat level, right? Because he they may have hostages. How do you prevent them from using that as the lever to get the reaction? That I yeah, guess is my that, that's that's one way of looking at it. Or it could be it could be no hostages. It could be just that guy that's coming back from uh, he's coming back from the sand after three years in the desert and he's suffering from post-traumatic stress and the VA is not giving him the assistance that he needs and he's having flashbacks. He's trashing the house girlfriend calls us and then he comes out on the front porch and he's holding a pistol. It can be something as, as I don't want to understand as, as minor as that. Um, right. And as limited, I guess would be the limited. Yeah. That, that's a, that's probably a better term. And so um, how do you manage that? Especially if you're a hostage negotiator, that, that type of call goes out and you're a hostage negotiator. You're the first one to respond to the scene. And there's this guy kneeling in the middle of the street with a handgun. Mm. What, what, do you, what are you doing? What are you thinking about? You're thinking about how can I engage this guy in suicide intervention techniques? And you're thinking about picking up your front sight on, on your weapon because, and your blade running. Because now at a, at a moment's notice, you, you'll flip from being a negotiator to defending your life. Mm. Very difficult. I've heard that term blade running before. Yeah. Uh, blade running. So blade running is you're running along that blade. And if you slip, you're going to get cut on either side. And so that that's what I refer to as, as blade running, because in that instance, you're thinking as a negotiator, but you're also thinking uh, at the end of the day, I got to go home. Yeah. That's, that's an impossible situation. I'm sure you're glad you're retired. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it happens quite frequently. It happens quite frequently. Wow. Um, now we'll go back to the easier one. I saw a, a part of a video. I think you were talking about um, a situation you were in with a a hostage taker named Mike, which was really Keith. Yeah, and the story was very compelling. Yeah, would you mind talking it out and and using the examples you were giving of the labels, mirrors, and calibrated questions? Yeah. So he told us his name was Mike. On the day that I met Mike, he and a partner had driven to Alexandria, Virginia. They both donned ski masks. Mike had a pistol in his waistband. He brandished a pistol, and they marched into a pawn shop with the intent on robbing it. And and, and Mike's problem was there was a 12-year-old kid riding by on a bicycle. He sees what's going on. He turns the corner to uh, a Five Guys restaurant that was in the same strip mall. And interestingly enough, we, we, we refer to the strip mall as hostage row because we, okay. had, we, had, we had multiple hostage takings in this one strip mall. It, it, it sat on the corner in between Arlington County and Alexandria, Virginia. We don't know why the criminal element chose to rob or take hostages there, but there were multiple occasions. So we named it hostage row. So the kid tells the manager at the five guys, the five guys manager calls the police. We had two units that were not far away. So they responded within 90 seconds. They deploy at the back of the business. It's great deployment. They're in their tactical L. Jeff has got his shotgun pointed at the back door. Adrian has her handgun pointed at the back door and they're at a, in an L shape. So they're not in danger of crossfire with one another. 
as Jeff is getting on the radio to coordinate the responding units, the back door flies open and there stands Mike and who we later learned to be Steve. They see Jeff, Jeff sees them, Jeff challenges them, police don't move and they slam the back door and now it's game on. Keith and Steve start to duct tape the people that were inside. There were three employees, five customers inside. They duct taped all of them, laid four in the front in, in front of the front door, four in front of the back door to use them as human barricades to keep us from coming in. When we finally call into the crisis site, Mike jumps all over us and starts calling us everything but a child of God. He's highly agitated. He's angry. He's screaming at us. He's telling us things like, don't come in here. If you guys do anything foolish, they're, they're, these people are going to get hurt and the blood's going to be on your hands. And with the use of labels, mirrors, and silence, we let Keith, I'm sorry, we let Mike tell his story. And what did we learn? Can you give me an example of what would be um, an example of your opening label? The opening was a calibrated question followed by a label. Okay. And And the calibrated question is the calibrated question that we use on almost every event. How did we get here today? We allayed his concerns. Mike, nobody's coming in there. We can promise you that. That's a, when somebody says don't come in here or else, that's, that's what we term a defensive threat because mm-hmm. they're setting the conditions under which violence will occur in their mind right. and they're relaying that to us. So as long as we don't do X, nothing is going to happen. So first thing we're going to do is allay that concern. Mike, we're not coming in. I hate to interrupt. On that one, too, there's a specificity that you're very concerned about, too, that gives you a timeline. Like if they say, if anybody comes and somebody gets hurt, but if that's one thing, but they say, if anybody knocks on that door, I am going to shoot this woman in the left leg. Yeah, we evaluate it for what it is. Is that a more specific threat? Yeah, does that carry a lot more weight? Absolutely, because it's a direct threat versus an implied threat. Something bad's going to happen. These people are going to get hurt is, is an implied threat. Uh, I'm going to shoot this woman in the leg is a more direct threat. And that carries a little bit more weight with us as we evaluate the threat level associated with the event. Um, so we wanted to tap that. We wanted to acknowledge it. Nobody's going to come in. How did we get here today? Okay. Because at the end of the day, most interrupted criminal offenses that turn into hostage takings. I like to say those are ground balls. I'll work those every day of the week. They're easy. Hmm. And the reason they're easy is because Mike didn't wake up that morning, brush his teeth and say, you know what? I think I'm going to go to a pawn shop today and take eight people hostage. Gotcha. Mike woke up and said, I need cash. Mm. And so that's what I mean by a ground ball. Interrupted crimes are are easier for us as a whole to deal with. I'm not telling you that the people that are taken hostage in those incidents aren't in any danger. They clearly are. Oh, sure, sure. But when it comes to me and my assessment of the event, I love robbery takeovers because I got something to work with. With... Mike, in this case, he starts to dump his bucket and he starts to tell us 
things that have been going on, the precipitating events that led him to where he is today and using labels and, 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 and mirrors and silence, we were able to get him to tell us that he was 17 years old when he first got locked up. He's 34 now at the time of this event, he was 34 years old. To half of his life. He had spent 17 years in the state penitentiary for, wait for it, armed robbery. That's right. Hmm. And inside the state penitentiary, he was subjected to some of the most inhumane behavior that you can imagine. He went in as a juvenile, by the way, into a state institution for adult males as a juvenile. He became addicted to heroin while incarcerated. He had gotten out six months previous to this event. His wife was all over him because A, he couldn't find gainful employment, and B, he was starting to hang out with some of the same element that got him in trouble the first time. He'd been trying to find a job, but as, as, as uh, any felon will tell you, gainful employment is hard to come by. Sure. And still suffering from the addiction, that morning he had gone to a clinic in uh, the District of Columbia in an attempt to get a prescription for methadone to help him kick his heroin addiction. And he didn't have a $25 copay. So they threw him out of the office. So Mike did what he normally did to cope. He went out, he copped some more heroin. He banged a needle into his arm. He got high. He came down from the high. He went to pick up Steve. They hatched this idea to rob the pawn shop. Labels, mirrors, and silence in the first hour got him to give us that much information. We had given him no information about ourselves, but that was enough for us to demonstrate an understanding of what he was going through. And it gave him an opportunity to relieve some of that emotional attention that was driving his behavior. Now, was he the alpha and Steve was kind of a follower or what was Steve's situation? He was the alpha in, in this. We had no, we had no interaction with Steve. In fact, Mike was such the alpha that he never let on that Steve, that he was in there with a, a co-conspirator. Oh, wow. In fact, when we asked him directly, he said, no, I'm in here by myself. Now we knew from forward observers who were observing the front of the, uh, the pawn shop that there were two males walking around in there. Remember everybody else is laid out on the floor, right? There are two males walking around in there. And the 12 year old told us there were two Jeff at the back door told us there were two. Mike insisted he was the only one for whatever reason he was trying to protect Steve, but labels, mirrors, and silence got us to move the needle with Mike and he stopped yelling at us and he says, I know what I need to do. I'm going to let some of these people go. And that's a win for us, right? Oh yeah. You'll never turn that down. And so boom, he starts to let people out. One of the people that came out with the first group of hostages was guess who steve how do you determine it since you did know there's a second person there did you sequester all the hostages to look after them which later on you'd follow up and see if absolutely so when when hostages come out number one you've seen it on tv before when hostages are being released they're coming out with their hands up like they're suspects right Mm -hmm. everybody's hands are up and everybody's hands are visible because hiding of bad guys in groups of hostages is not new uh, we've been dealing with it for forever. So they get debriefed by the negotiations team and then a crime has been committed. So now they have to give a statement to 
the detectives investigating the crime that was committed. And you separate them? And, and we, and we, we separate them. We throw them all in the cars. We take them all down to the station and they give their statements. Okay. And that's where we figured out that we had one of the bad guys with okay. us, but it was a watershed moment for us because we got people out and we're starting to build rapport with Mike and he's going on. This was right after the turn of the first hour. He let those five go and he's starting to go on and he's telling us that he's sick of it. I'm tired of it. This country is not set up for a black man to succeed in America today. There are too many obstacles. Every time you try to, to, to get ahead, somebody is pulling you back. I'm tired of having to explain my situation to everybody. And, and they want to do background checks. And they find out I've been in prison and, and nobody wants to touch me. And then he starts to cry. Hmm. And he says, I can't believe I did this again. I can't believe this mess. He didn't use the word mess. He goes, sure. this, this is, this is, this is the, this is, this is awful. I've let so many people down. And he's saying this through tears and we're trying to re-encourage, we're trying to encourage him and, and tell him that, you know, it's, it, you, you've done the right thing. It's not too late to turn this thing around. You know, uh, bad things happen to good people all the time, mm-hmm. et cetera. And then Eric, uh, right before we, top out into the second hour, he abruptly, he stops crying. And he goes, I, I know what I need to do. And in the negotiation room, we're all looking at each other and we're going, he's, he's going to do it. He's going he's thinking about killing himself. Mm-hmm. So now our priority is we got to get those people out. So we have returned Mike to a normal functioning level. It's not quite as normal as we would like it, but his emotional level has gone down. His rational thinking has started to come up. And now he says, I know what I need to do. And he says, Hey, look, man, my name's not Mike. It's Keith. Again, we knew he was Keith all along. We had done our homework. We knew who we were dealing with, but whose frame of reference were we dealing with? Sure. His, he wanted to be Mike. We let him be Mike. But the fact that he divulged who he actually was as far as rapport is concerned, tells me quite a bit. Mm-hmm. We're feeling a lot better in the negotiation room once he shared that with us. So we felt that we were in a better position to start directing his decision-making. And so that's when we started to compare and contrast, you know, uh, what these people have to do with his current situation. And he says, I get it. I get it. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to let these people out. I'm going to let them go one at a time. And he starts to untape these people and he starts to stand them up. And he says to them, go on out there. I'm sorry. And he's apologizing to each one of them as they walk to the door. I didn't mean to put you through this. Sorry, I threw you on the ground. Make sure you have your purse, ma'am. And the the last person to leave, her name was Jill. He says, what's your name, miss? She says, I'm Jill. She says, Jill. He says, Jill. I want you to go out there. I want you to find my wife. He gave her the name and he said, she's a short, light skinned, very thin black female. You'll know her. Go to her, tell her that I'm sorry. Tell her that I love her. And he gets back on the phone and he says, Jill's the last one out. When she clears the door, let that door uh, close and it's all going to be over. And true to his word, 
Jill gets released. She was the final hostage. The door closes. And then we hear the gunshot. Mm. Now, would I have liked to have gotten him out? Of course, I would have liked to have gotten him out. But my, I, I never predicate my success or failure on whether or not I get the bad guy out. Sure. If I go home and the people I was sent there to protect go home, it's a win. Um, but none of that would have happened if we had not deferred to him at the beginning of the conversation and allowed him an opportunity to, to share with us what was motivating his behavior. Because again, he didn't go there to take hostages. There was something else. So how does that apply to the business world? When people tell you no, or they issue a threat or demand in the business world, mm-hmm. it's because of the same reasons that Mike was acting out, mistrust and fear. Why did, why did Mike mistrust us? Because we were law enforcement. We were his adversary his entire life. Why was he afraid? Um, he was afraid because something that he cherished very deeply had been ripped from him in a matter of seconds, and that was freedom and autonomy. Sure. And the same things can be said for people in, in, in the business world, not to the same level, but there is no business decision that is made devoid of emotion. And the, the sooner you attack the negative emotions as the other side sees it, the better you are, uh, the better position that you're in, in order to move the needle in the direction of where you want to go. I imagine pride would play a factor in all of it. Um, letting your, I don't want to say adversary, I'd say counterpart. It would probably be a good way to think of a negotiation because you're Absolutely. You want to see as a communication versus a, an argument or a negotiation or disagreement. Right. The, 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 the situation is the adversary. Your challenge, if you're black swan trained, is to, is to ask yourself, how do I make my counterpart a problem-solving partner to address the adversary, which is the situation. So you're recruiting them in a way. You're a team. We're a team. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not me against you. It's you and I against whatever the issue is. This contract, um, uh, uh, this real estate deal, this current hostage taking. My job is to, to show Mike I'm on his side in order to address what the real issue is. And I'm guessing in some of those cases, I mean, w- the story you gave is a very hard story. I can't help but think that there were a lot of failures in Mike's situation. Obviously, he took the last action himself, mm-hmm. but I can see that there were triggering factors. Absolutely. We could all improve on yeah. as a society. Sure, sure, sure. How do you get addicted to heroin in a state correctional facility? Right. How, how, how is that even possible? Um, uh, how is it, how is it possible that now Mike was never going to work at, at, at Chase bank, Sure. But, but how is it possible that no one is going to give this guy a, a, a second chance based on the totality of the circumstance? This is not a guy that, sure. that, that committed an armed robbery when he was 27 and then got released and did it again. This is a guy that committed an armed robbery when he was 17. Should he be held in a different light? I think I think so. So yeah, there are a lot of contributing factors that eventually led to to what occurred with Mike, and that's why it was important for us to use mirrors and labels and silence to get him to share it with us because we know that the precipitating event happened within the previous twenty four to forty eight hours. 
And the sooner we knock down what this precipitating event is, the sooner we can get him to lower his emotion and then begin to direct his decision-making. Jumping back to your career, I know you had mentioned that you were um, police, I think, and then you retired and went to the sheriff's office. Yeah. Now, I'm from uh, I'm originally from Tucson. Okay. And out there, we have Pima County sheriffs. Okay. Now, in Tucson, you have the police, and they have full police authority, and the sheriffs the deputies damn sure have full authority. They're identical with the uh, county actually probably having even slightly more power. Mm-hmm. However, now I live in Hampton, Virginia <laughs> and Hampton and the um, county that it is part of kicking it are the same thing. So it's the same jurisdiction, but the police have the police power in the sheriff's office. They work in the courts, the jails, and they serve warrants and things. So it's, I'm not going to say they don't have law enforcement powers, but it's a very specific power. What is the situation like in um, Alexandria? It's the same, and it may be germane to the Commonwealth, but the sheriff's office has jurisdiction. Do do they have full police powers? If they see a crime committed in their presence and they're out on the road, can they intervene? Are they duty-bound to act? Absolutely. But their primary focus is maintaining security of, of the jailing facility, maintaining the security of the courthouse, and then civil process when they go out and they serve eviction notices or seizure notices. So it's a secondary law enforcement response. The police department has the primary responsibility for the entire city. The chief of police is appointed. The sheriff is elected. So he has a constituency mm-hmm. that he's he's concerned with as well. So what was your um, role? I was just curious. You, know, you did the one thing at the police. What did you do in the uh, sheriff's side? Um, I I ran their crisis negotiations team. That was my part-time assignment. In my full-time assignment, I was their uh, internal affairs investigator. So I got invited to all the parties and picnics. Oh, have fun. <laughs> yeah, nobody, nobody wanted to see me coming. In fact, my office was adjacent to the jail. So anytime I walked into the jail, the phones would start ringing. He's on the first floor. He's on the second floor. He's coming to the fourth floor. <laughs> Okay, I could see why you only wanted to do three years of that. Yeah, Ugh. now it was it was a soft landing for me after retirement. I, I don't have any regrets about it. I was provided the opportunity by the sheriff, who happened to be my mentor as a hostage negotiator when I was at the police hmm. department. And so, obviously, there was a relationship beyond professional between the two of us. And so, when the opportunity presented itself, I I said, "Yeah, I'd love to come aboard." And so he he brought me in. But at the same time the Black Swan group was starting to spin up and generate a lot more interest. And so after about three years of that, I knew it was time for me to to uh, jump on board full-time with Chris. Yeah, it sounds like you guys work really well together, um, except when he sends you to uh, teach the Chinese and he'll lose the gig. Yeah, he teaches, He told you that story, did he? Well, it was in the foreword of your book. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> very interesting. Uh, teaching. I was teaching. Okay, get your head around this, if you will. Hostage negotiation is equivalent to a foreign language, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm teaching hostage negotiations practices and principles to business people who only speak Chinese, and I'm doing it in Germany. I don't speak right. Chinese, and I don't speak German. Did they have uh, translators? They had multiple translators. And those translators were fantastic. But the irony of all the different angles that uh, this thing had, it's just, it never ceases to amaze me. I still chuckle to myself. 
but yeah, Chris couldn't show one time and, and he told our partner over at the university in, in Frankfurt that he was unavailable, but I got Derek and I guess they liked me because they stopped asking <laughs> him to come back and they, they wanted me back over, over and over again. Well, that bodes well. Now, how did you originally meet up with Chris and then get involved with Black Swan? So Chris came down from New York, I think in 2000, if I'm not mistaken. He was, you know, he was a negotiator in New York. He was with the JTTF in New York, but then he applied for and was accepted to the ivory tower at Quantico, Virginia. Mm -hmm. That's the crisis negotiations unit at Quantico, Virginia. Anything dealing with hostage negotiation or hostage barricade management was spoken from on high from that ivory tower. <laughs> they gave the entire world, and I, I kid you not, their influence is worldwide. They gave the entire world their marching orders when it came to how to manage these difficult events. So Chris got a promotion yeah. to, to, the, to the CNU. And because Alexandria is only 35 miles away from Quantico, and I was very active in the community of negotiators in the metropolitan area, our paths started to cross especially in training venues. And, and we became mm -hmm. fast friends. He was my in to things CNU that other people didn't have access to. So I thought that was pretty cool. And so, yeah, we became fast friends. And fast forward to 2007, he steps out on his own, hangs out his shingle. And three years later, he was sending me to Frankfurt. And I haven't looked back. That's really cool. Now, have you gone Hollywood like him? or No, nah, nah, I haven't gone Hollywood like him. There's a funny story about that. Let me tell you, I'll show you, share with you a funny story about that, him going Hollywood. As I said, and as you know, he's from New York and then he moved to DC, right? Mm -hmm. So he's, he's, he's familiar with the summers in both New York and DC, but being out in, in California has made him soft. So he's been out in California <laughs> for a couple of years. And then we, we go back to, uh, we, we meet in New York. I fly out from DC. He flies from LA. We meet in New York to do a, a training hit for a large commercial aircraft company. And we step out after, or right before lunch to go get something to eat. And we step out onto a New York city street on September or July 17th, 2017. <laughs> And he goes, oh my gosh, it's so hot here. I don't know how you people do it. <laughs> and I looked at him. I said, you've got to be kidding me, Chris. You spent, the most of your, you spent most of your life right here in this city during the summertime. And now, because it doesn't get above 70 in California, you come back and you're looking down your nose at us. <laughs> That's when I knew he had changed. But it was confirmed just recently when he and I are on a conference call, just like the one we're on now. And we're about to start chewing the fat over some content development. And so I said, Hey, what's the weather like in LA? And he looks <laughs> at me dead serious on the camera and he goes, I don't live in LA. I live in West Hollywood. <laughs> and I said, I'm done. I, I don't even know who you are anymore. <laughs> well, I hope you keep the face. So what's coming up for Derek Gaunt and where can people find you? Oh, blackswanlimited.com. You can find it. You can just, uh, Throw me into LinkedIn. It's it's popping up all over now. You can throw it into Google. You're going to find out different areas where you can find me. But yeah, pushing the book out. Ego authority failure. It takes a little bit different look at hostage negotiation and, and takes it out of the business negotiation world and, and just puts it in the business environment into the hands of leaders because leaders through their authority, uh, through their ego are failing a lot of the time because they, they don't know how to defer 
to their downliners, to their subordinates. So they don't know how to demonstrate that they see the world as their employees see it. So it's more of a day-to-day communication manual of how to negotiate through the business world? Yeah, it, there's there's some of that in the latter portions of the book. What, what I've done is I've taken stories from real world events and, and the people that I highlight in the book and that I interviewed for the book, they aren't your, you know, these aren't your, your, your Bill, your Bill Gates or some three-star general or some NCAA division one basketball coach. These are run of the mill managers just trying to eke out a living every day. And some of the successes and a lot of their failures as it pertains to how they conduct themselves under the influence of ego and uh, authority. So there's a lot of cautionary tales. There's takeaways at the end of each chapter. And as we get in the chapter 11 through the end of the book is when I really start throwing out the skills in order to help them use tactical empathy to build rapport before launching into whatever message they want to give to their subordinates or, or their downliners. So it's just taking the concepts and practices of, and principles of hostage negotiation and sticking it in leaders, providing them with a tool or the tools that they need to communicate better one person to another. So it's ultimately a communication book. It's ultimately a communication book and, and understanding that human nature response, you know, uh, and as soon as we get our heads around that as, as a, as a society, we're going to be better off. Well, that's awesome. Thank you so much for coming on here. Thank you for having me, man. I had a lot of fun. I appreciate your time and I appreciate the invite. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please consider subscribing for free. And I mean for free. It is always free. There's no billing, anything else. You can subscribe in your player of choice, which is probably right in your hands. Or you can go to unstructuredpod.com. And there are plenty of links there. Thank you so much. And in the spirit of sharing... Here's a couple more shows you may want to check out. Hey, are you a podcaster or want to be podcaster? The Mid-Atlantic Podcast Conference is the place to be September 6th and 7th in Atlantic City, New Jersey. It's by podcasters for podcasters with a focus on creativity, community building, and turning your podcast into your business. Learn more at midatlanticpodcast.com. Hi, this is Kara Mayer Robinson, and I host Really Famous. I interview A-list celebrities. I dive deep because I used to be a therapist. This is what Tim Gunn said. I just have this antipathy for the judges. I can't stand being in the same room with them. Tim Daly. If you're not working in L.A. and you're an actor, there's no worse place to be. Michael Rappaport. I changed schools every year from the third grade to the twelfth grade. Disruptive was my thing. Chaz Palminteri. I knew something was going on. I said, I got to talk to somebody. It's Really Famous. It's like eavesdropping on a therapy session. Welcome, everybody, to this promo for my show, Business with Super Joe Pardo, where I break down business lessons week after week after week after week after week. Whether you are new or a seasoned vet at business operations, my show will help you take your business game to the top. Looking forward to meeting you over at superjoepardo.com.